welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet podcast. I am your host, Georgia Ray. Today, we will be having a conversation about electric vehicles with Jack Lyman, a member of the Environmental Law Institute's 2022 Emerging Leaders Institute cohort. As part of our series on young professionals in the environmental field, we will reflect on the role electric vehicle production and use plays within a just energy transition. The significant environmental and human health benefits that are linked to electrifying transportation cannot be downplayed. EVs do not produce tailpipe emissions, and when charged using electricity generated from renewable sources like solar and wind, result in no operational upstream emissions either. However, Jack discusses how EVs can present new environmental and social challenges that governments will have to address as more EVs reach the roads. Before we get started, I want to tell you a little bit more about Jack. Jack is a partner at Martin Law LLP a boutique environmental law firm with offices in Seattle, Portland, Boston, and Washington, D.C. Jack focuses his practice on regulatory compliance and providing counsel to energy and transportation clients on a wide range of environmental laws, including the Clean Air Act. Before entering private practice, Jack was an attorney advisor for the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration within the U.S. Department of Transportation, working on fuel economy and vehicle safety issues. Jack started his legal career as a trial attorney for the U.S. Department of Justice's Environment and Natural Resource Division, where he represented federal agencies as they ensured their compliance with pollution control laws and sought cost recovery for federal work at contaminated sites. Jack lives in Northeast D.C., and due to some lingering vehicle range anxiety, is the proud owner of a plug-in hybrid EV. Jack, thank you for taking the time to be here with me today. Yeah, thanks, Georgia. Happy to be here. Um, I I love talking about EVs and charging. I'm excited to do so here with ELI. I'm wondering if you could give a brief overview of the current environmental policy and legal landscape surrounding motor vehicles and electric vehicles, EVs in particular. So when we think of environmental impacts from vehicles, we typically start with local air quality. So you think smog in L.A., And more recently, we think of climate change, and we should start there um, in those places because the ground transportation sector generates roughly a third of U.S. GHG emissions and is a major contributor uh, to emissions of four criteria pollutants under the Clean Air Act, ground-level ozone, carbon monoxide, particulate matter, or PM, which we'll talk about a bit more, and then nitrogen nitrogen dioxide, excuse me. And so what's the common thread in terms of these environmental effects? It's the engines that have propelled the vast majority of vehicles since the early 1900s. And those those engines have been internal combustion engines fueled by gasoline or diesel. And combusting those fuels results in what we call exhaust or tailpipe emissions. In the U.S., regulatory programs by EPA, by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, or NHTSA, and the California Air Resources Board, or CARB, they govern the energy efficiency of and emissions from motor vehicles. So in addition to those tailpipe emissions, there are also environmental effects associated with manufacturing the vehicle, driving the vehicle, and disposing of or recycling the vehicle, hopefully, 
or its components at the end of the vehicle's life. The EPA and the states are responsible for controlling those environmental effects. They typically do so in, in a more indirect manner, um, but that's that's not going to be really the focus of, of what we talked about today. But but how do EVs fit into all of this? Going back to your question, Georgia. So EVs are propelled by electric motors powered by electricity stored in a rechargeable battery that is incorporated into the vehicle. So that means no tailpipe emissions. But EVs have big batteries that require greater quantities of rarer, rarer minerals than gas cars and may require more care at end of life. Those big batteries also make them heavier than comparable gas cars, which means more tire wear, more brake wear, and more road wear. And so when leaders and agencies talk about how they'll get more EVs on the roads to help with climate change and with local air pollution, they'll also need to start thinking about these other effects. Yeah, that's a really interesting point that you raise, and I'd love to get deeper into it. So when we're talking about the weight of EVs and what environmental effects that extra weight could cause, can you expand on that? So it, it comes down to what's called particulate matter or PM emissions. I, I talked about this at the top. Think of PM as very fine dust, you know, smaller in diameter than a, than a, a grain of sand or a hair that can be inhaled and can damage our lungs. There are two general types of PM when we're talking vehicles tailpipe or exhaust PM, and then non-tailpipe PM. And so a traditional gas or diesel vehicle releases pollutants like CO2, nitrogen, some of which turns into nitrogen oxides or NOx, and PM from its tailpipe as a result of the engine combusting that gas or diesel. And up until recently, those tailpipe emissions were the primary source of PM emissions for, from vehicles. But with more and more hybrid and electric vehicles and higher efficiency gas and diesel vehicles on the road, due to increasing government stringency standards, tailpipe emissions, tailpipe PM emissions have fallen pretty dramatically. Now the other source of PM emissions, those non-exhaust emissions, they're now responsible for the vast majority of PM emissions. And these non-exhaust emissions are actually increasing slightly year over year. So non-exhaust PM emissions, um, like I mentioned, include emissions from brake wear, from tire wear, from road abrasion, and then the resuspension of, of road dust, you know, dust that's already on the road. And so why are PM emissions more of a concern for EVs? So EVs are heavier than gas vehicles due to their big batteries. And generally, generally speaking, more weight means more frictional force on the tires, on the brake pads, and on the roadways. And that additional force means more wear, and the wear is the PM emissions. And so as the low-hanging fruit, you know, the, the PM from tailpipe emissions has shrunk with these increasingly stringent exhaust standards for ICE, internal combustion engine vehicles, governments will need to implement strategies that address these non-exhaust PM emissions. And actually, the EU is the first regulatory body to take that step. Just last week, in, in mid-November 2022, the European Commission proposed its, they're called Euro 7 standards, which includes limits on PM emissions from passenger car and light truck brakes and tires for both EVs and traditional vehicles. And if, if and when those are finalized, they'll take an effect a few years from now. And that's the first example we've seen of, of governments starting to really identify and, and take these emissions seriously. Wow. Well, I'm glad we're having this conversation now. It seems like it's a really timely issue. Something you've spoken about this issue for a long time and something you've mentioned in the past is the idea of regenerative braking. What is this technology and how does it fit into this broader EV conversation? Right. So 
One sort of secondary distinguishing feature of EVs and most hybrid vehicles too, is the fact that they have what's called regenerative braking. Now, the primary purpose of regenerative braking is to extend the life um, of the vehicle battery's charge. It, it does this by capturing energy that is otherwise lost during braking and using that power to help recharge the vehicle's battery. But it actually has other benefits too. As I mentioned, EVs are heavier. Being heavier means more wear on brakes, and that wear is what releases particulate matter PM that harms local air quality. But with regenerative braking, the braking generally does not re rely on frictional wear of the brake materials. So EVs generally have lower brake wear emissions than traditional vehicles in all types of driving, and in urban driving especially. And we've gotten into the details here in these last couple questions, but I want to zoom back out a little bit. What are some common misconceptions that people have about EVs? Thanks. Yeah, they're, you know, EVs are a new technology. They still account for less than or around, it might even exceed 5% of annual car sale, sales in the U.S. And because they're new, as with other new technologies, there are misconceptions. And I'll, I'll try to touch on just two big ones here. One major misconception is that there simply aren't enough charging stations to make EVs worthwhile. Importantly, most people charge their EVs at home overnight, and they don't experience issues with day-to-day -day driving. More and more employers also offer charging, which can be another option for many EV drivers. But many city dwellers do not have private garages or off-street parking, um, and that's where we need to be a little bit more creative. So some local governments are acquiring new or renovated apartment buildings to install charging ports or at least include wiring so that it's easier to later install those charging points. I'll try to include a couple links, those types of examples. Also, some local governments are experimenting with charging ports attached to utility poles on local streets. I'll give some, I'll give an example of, of those in the show notes as well. For long trips, federal money from the bipartisan infrastructure law, the bill, will be flowing soon, very soon, in fact, to build more charging stations and highway corridors. And there's also exciting research happening that can yield EV batteries that charge most of the way in roughly the same amount of time it takes to fill a tank of gas. In the meantime, and until we get to that point, and I hope we do get to that point, I think we'll start to see highway charging stations become kind of a destination where drivers won't mind spending you know, 20, 30, 40 minutes waiting for a charge while they have a cup of coffee or have a sandwich or you know something like that. And so a second major misconception is that EV batteries don't last long and they'll just end up in landfills in a few years. And that, that's wrong as well. So federal law requires EV manufacturers provide separate battery warranties covering eight years and 100,000 miles just for the battery, not for the entire vehicle. Some manufacturers will replace a battery under this kind of warranty if it degrades to 60 to 70% of its original capacity. About a decade ago, Nissan looked at actual vehicle data for about 450 of its LEAF vehicles in Arizona, and it projected the average vehicle net market to have a battery capacity of about 75% remaining after five years. That study was a decade ago. Batteries in newer vehicles tend to degrade less or less frequently. And now once depleted, EV batteries can be recycled. And let me give you a few examples of how this can be done. Volkswagen pioneered a plant that extracts the vast majority of useful, useful materials from EV batteries for reuse. Nissan, again, has installed what it calls Second Life Leaf Batteries at its North American facilities 
and its used LEAF batteries are now certified for stationary energy storage more generally by a leading product safety and certification organization. More recently, in September 2022, Kia announced a new partnership with the German National Rail Railway Company to reuse former EV batteries in a microgrid setting. So it's not fair to say that EVs or their batteries are simply discarded once the range starts to diminish. And if we can shift gears a little bit here, I know when we talk about EV, environmental justice is a buzzword that comes up a lot. So how are and how can environmental justice and equity considerations shape the electrification of ground transportation? Great question, Georgia. So first off, as our listeners probably know, EVs are often criticized as being only for rich people. It's true that historically EVs cost more upfront than a comparable gas vehicle, you know, sometimes thousands of dollars more. But battery and engine improvements and government ex- incentives have shrunk that cost gap dramatically. And the cost savings in gas and maintenance typically make up any remaining cost difference in just a few years of owning and driving the vehicle. So there's that. And, and I want to make two other broad points specifically toward EJ. First, studies have shown that EVs, and particularly heavy-duty EVs, improve air quality in environmental justice communities. Low-income neighborhoods and communities of color are more likely to be near transportation corridors and freight hubs, and traditionally powered medium and heavy-duty vehicles like delivery vans, garbage trucks, school buses, tractor trailers, produce huge amounts of smog-forming nitrous oxide emissions. Electrifying those fleets will do wonders for local air quality in those EJ communities. Second, the Inflation Reduction Act passed by Congress this summer, summer 22, should be a boon for improving equity in the EV market. So first are the vehicle purchase incentives. The IRA removed the cap on the number of vehicles eligible for the tax credit for a given automaker. And that means affordable EVs and plug-in hybrids from GM and Toyota are eligible for the credit again. The IRA also makes used EVs eligible for the credit for the first time, a smaller credit, but a credit nonetheless. Finally, the new vehicle credit can now be delivered at the point of sale, meaning the dealer should be able to discount the cost of the vehicle by the amount of the credit and claim the credit, rather than the buyer having to wait until next year's tax return and have to have a federal tax liability exceeding the credit's value um, to get that credit. And in terms of charging, the IRA will also support charging infrastructure build-out in lower-income communities, which are often overlooked. Another incentive brought back by the IRA is the tax credit for new EV charging stations. So a charging station installer can get a 30% credit for the cost of a new station as long as geographic and labor conditions are met. So the station must be placed in service in an eligible census tract to qualify. And eligible areas include only defined low-income communities and non-urban areas. And a low-income community is a census tract where the poverty rate is at least 20% or the median family income for the tract does not exceed 80% of the statewide median family income or 80% of the metro area median family income for tracts in a metro area. So these are two ways that federal incentives can be focused towards environmental justice communities in the EV space. And I'll note that when the bill passed, the White House issued a statement specifically pointing to to President Biden's Justice 40 initiative as being served and advanced by the IRA. And when we talk about the transition to electric vehicles, does that relate to a shift towards using renewable energy sources as well? 
What about the argument that many EV drivers have to charge with electricity from non-renewable sources? Yeah, I, I think they complement each other, Georgia. So think about batteries. Two key issues with solar and wind energy is that they are intermittent and their peak production doesn't necessarily match peak power demand. A solution to this intermittency is big stationary batteries at or near the point of generation to smooth these peaks and store power at times of high generation and or low demand for release at times of low generation and or high demand. And at the same time as this is happening, EV manufacturers are moving towards software and battery technology that can allow EVs that are plugged in to charge themselves when electricity is cheapest, and then in turn provide power back to the grid or to a stationary battery when electricity is most expensive, as long as the utility allows for it. And that's, that's a big caveat there. This is called bi-directional charging. And just weeks ago in early November, 2022, California Public Utilities Commission allowed it for the first time in California. Another in innovation we'll see more and more of is charging stations, particularly in rural areas that incorporate solar canopies and stationary batteries. So a solar canopy is, is basically a roof that has solar panels built into it, provides shade underneath it, but provide power as well. And so although a few dozen square feet of solar panels will not provide nearly enough electricity to charge a steady stream of EVs, they do represent new renewable energy generating capacity and when paired with a battery can help with the intermittency dilemma. And Georgia, your question also relates to another common misconception that EVs are not better for the climate than traditional gas cars are. And that's simply not true in any circumstance. Start with the efficiency of the motor. Electric motors are three to four times more efficient than gas engines in terms of converting stored energy, whether in fuel or in electrons, to forward motion. What's more, as I've already mentioned, EVs emit no tailpipe pollutants. Of course, there likely are emissions associated with generating the electricity used to charge the EV in the first place, and the amount of those emissions depend on the carbon intensity of the electricity generation for the area in which the vehicle is charged. So, for example, charging in Vermont or Washington or California means fewer emissions than charging in a place like West Virginia or Kentucky or Wyoming. EPA and DOE have actually developed tools for estimating GHG emissions from EVs in different areas. But studies have shown, you know, even, even assuming this carbon intensity point, um, studies have shown that an EV charged in a high carbon intensity area still pollutes less than a comparable gas vehicle. And even factoring in manufacturing and disposal of the EV, studies have shown that EVs produce roughly half the global warming potential than gas or diesel vehicles. We've talked at length to this point about the environmental impacts associated with electric vehicles. I'm curious to hear your position on whether governments, environmental law firms, and NGOs should focus on incentivizing people to reduce their vehicle miles traveled or increase their use of public transportation. If so, how should they do this? So first and foremost, um, EVs are not a panacea. They're not a cure-all. They're simply the best transportation solution we have right now to help transition to a low-carbon society because American culture and economy remains very car dependent um, in even the densest urban areas. EVs are still heavy metal boxes that require lots of energy to move and take up lots of space, I mean, whether they're parked or moving, and they present serious safety hazards or can prevent serious safety hazards to other road and sidewalk users. And they're often moving only one person for an hour or two or less each day. 
So at the same time that governments are incentivizing EVs over traditional gas and diesel vehicles, they should also be incentivizing trips that don't involve the use of a personal vehicle at all. Um, and that means more transit, cycling, walking. One strategy for reducing VMTs, vehicle miles traveled, that I'm in favor of is, is congestion pricing done in a thoughtful, equitable way. So congestion pricing re refers to a fee levied on drivers that's intended to convince people to avoid driving in certain areas during certain times, like rush hour. So I'm an economics nerd at heart, and driving personal vehicles in downtowns and urban areas at peak times imposes what we call social costs that, do, that those drivers don't currently pay. Or put another way, uh, congestion pricing makes drivers pay for scarce road space, which is otherwise free to them. So cities like Singapore, Stockholm, Milan, Gothenburg, and, and London in particular have implemented congestion pricing in the form of, of what's called a cordon, which is a charge for entering the central city at defined peak times. New York City is in the process of implementing a, a congestion pricing plan. It, it's been a long time coming. Listeners in the DC area may be familiar with another type of congestion pricing, and that's the, the variable priced lanes on the Beltway. And then, so congestion pricing should push down demand. And so what do you do with, with the, the revenues raised uh, by the congestion price? We can use those revenues to fund tra transit and fund the energy transition. We can use it to, to improve bus headways, you know, the amount of time between buses. We can use it to devote more space on our streets to, to cyclists and to pedestrians. And, and fewer, fewer vehicles on the road responding to a congestion price means less air pollution, you know, including PM emissions from EVs. It means less noise pollution. It means greater safety outcomes. The list goes on. But it all has to be done, done equitably, going back to our concerns about environmental justice. It needs stakeholder input. input. Revenues should prioritize EJ concerns. Lower-income drivers should receive discounts. So that's congestion pricing. Other ways, you know, we can reduce VMTs. So private companies and organizations can also incentivize reducing VMTs. Many employers, including the federal government, subsidize transit use um, for their employees by allowing for pre-tax deduction, deductions for transit costs. Employers that aren't the federal government can use wellness plans um, to encourage walking and cycling to work. Employers can provide showers and locker rooms and secure storage locations for bike commuters. They can eliminate free or reduced parking. They can use that money saved to reimburse employees to purchase a bike or a bike share membership. Um, so those are those are some other options that we can um, that we can use to to reduce VMTs even while we're sort of electrifying the fleet and and, and starting this transition or continuing this transition to a low carbon economy. Thank you for sharing your depth of knowledge on this topic. And as we reach the end of the episode here, I want to talk a little bit more about you personally. You're an emerging expert in the legal and policy issues around electrifying ground transportation and a leader within environmental law. Do you have any advice for other young professionals interested in a career in environmental law and this field in particular? Yeah, I'm, I'm always happy to, to respond to this question, Georgia. So, so first, I would say, think about whether law school would be a good fit for you. And what do I mean by that? You shouldn't go to law school just because you, you were admitted or because you didn't know what else to do. If you're interested in environmental policy, you don't necessarily need a law degree to, to do that, though it can help, of course. If you have an undergraduate or graduate background in physical or environmental science or engineering, you could have more impact 
towards environmental issues in consulting or academia or government. Though, again, that kind of background does help if, if you do want to be an, an environmental lawyer, if you, if you decide that that's the right path for you. But if you, if you enjoy coming up with clever solutions to difficult problems, if you're detail-oriented, if you're self-motivated, you may well be suited to a career in environmental law. And so I'd encourage you know, trying to get some kind of law-related work experience, such as a, a summer or an entry-level job at a law firm or a legal nonprofit or you know, even a DA's office to see what attorneys do on a day-to-day basis. And as for me, I, I became interested in environmental issues during my undergraduate years. My skill set was in social sciences and persuasive writing, not in math or hard sciences. And so to, to sort of fulfill this interest or you know, scratch this itch, I, I added a minor in sustainability studies. And as part of the capstone class for that minor, I and others in my small group surveyed covenants and bylaws from home, homeowners associations in the town next to our campus to see how those HOAs restricted environmental best, best practices like solar panels and vegetable gardens, rain barrels, and how their residents could, could fight back. And at that point, I knew I wanted to be an environmental lawyer. So I took the LSAT, I, I interned with an environmental nonprofit, I applied to law school, and I've been fortunate enough to, to have practiced environmental law for my, my entire career since I graduated and, and, practiced, and passed the bar exam. And so what, is, what does a career as an environmental lawyer look like? Because that's, <laughs> that's something else you should think about. You know, most environmental lawyers particularly as their careers progress, focus on one type of practice. And and by type here, I mean a regulatory practice, a transactional practice, a litigation practice, or sort of public policy advocacy. A practice focusing on electrification of ground transportation is primarily a regulatory practice where lawyers help draft environmental legislation and regulations, advise clients on compliance with those environmental laws and regulations, and represent clients in administrative and rulemaking proceedings related to developing and implementing environmental policies and procedures. At times, the practice can be transactional where an attorney attorney helps identify the environmental and land use issues involved with selling or leasing property, and there, developing charging infrastructure comes to mind. So to someone thinking about this field, you should think about whether these kinds of topics interest you. On a more theoretical level, less logistical, being an environmental lawyer means confronting climate change every day. How do you stay optimistic in the face of climate change? So at the micro level, seeing more and more people riding bikes around the city, I live in Washington, whether it's parents taking kids to school and those those big bikes, bikes with the extra seats, the cargo areas, or you know, commuters and work clothes heading downtown on bike share bikes or personal bikes, or food delivery services using delivery drivers that are on e-bikes rather than you know, using full-size personal vehicles. Those things you know, give me hope. <laughs> in, the, in the EV space specifically, it's been encouraging to see automakers sort of forge ahead on getting more EV models to the market, improving range, getting sticker prices down. It seems like every other car commercial I see on TV is now for an EV. The EV share of new vehicle sales is at a tipping point, I think. It's a bit of a chicken or the egg situation with charging, and by that I mean you're seeing less. Why build charging stations? There are so few EVs, and you know why make or buy an EV? There's so few charging stations. 
I think we're at that point where both of those things can move in for can can move forward together, in, you know, and at an increasing rate. Another thing that gives me hope is is creative industry disrupting disrupting startups like some of my clients. They're they're bringing new thinking to old ways of moving people and goods around, and they're em- emphasizing improving environmental and social outcomes um, as part of their business models. It's also encouraging to me to see local governments taking action in the charging space, sort of putting their money where their mouth is. Federal funding is great, but charging is intimately linked to to zoning and land use and, and building codes. And that's where cities are starting to play a key role. As I think I mentioned, you know, many cities are requiring big new developments to install charging stations at the outset, or at least lay the wiring for it. And I'll, I'll kind of wrap up and say, you know, we still have a long way to go. And electrifying ground transportation alone will not get us there. We still need fewer VMTs, more renewable energy, more efficient buildings, better land use. The list goes on. But EVs are pulling their weight, and I'm proud to be a part of that. Well, Jack, thank you for joining me today and sharing this important background information on electric vehicles and imbuing that commentary with your own very informed perspective. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Georgia. My pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.